Malachi chapter 2. If you have your Bible, um, follow along with me. If you don't, quickly sneak and get one in the back and you just take it home with you. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to read all the way to verse 5, although I might include verse 6. God's Word says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied Him? Well, by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let me pray. Father, we come before you as broken, sinful, screwed up people. We have absolutely nothing in ourselves to offer you of any worth. But you, Father, have loved us. You, Father, have done everything possible for us to even come into your presence by sending your Son. And more than that, you have given us your word so I pray, Father, that you will use your word this morning to change us, to see your judgment in a way that is glorious. Father, show us our own sin. Show us our own unworthiness. Let the veil not fall over our hearts or our minds, but lift it that we might experience the glory that is the face of Jesus and the redemption that comes through his blood. It's in his name the only name given under heaven by which we might be saved, that we pray. Amen. Malachi. Malachi. This is a short, little, hard-hitting book. The prophecy of Malachi, which is only four chapters, is largely, for the most part, a condemnation on false worship. Specifically, the false worship of God's people, the Israelites, whom he chose not because they were the biggest people, because they were the smartest people, the best-looking people, but because he chose to love this people. But instead of responding in the way you would think 
one might respond having been the chosen people out of all the peoples of the world. Instead of following the prescribed, like written down for all time that we can even read them, laws about sacrifices and what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, the people bring clearly lame, unlawful offerings to the temple. And God says, by doing that, you profane my name. You profane who I am for your families, for this community, for the world. You take lightly my name. And the priests who have kind of led in this perversion of worship by not leading at all, instead of teaching the law and confronting the people when they bring those lame sacrifices, they could have said something. They could have said, no, this is not acceptable. How do you know that? It says it right here. Instead of confronting lawlessness, instead of getting in their face about their sin, they take what we might consider the easy way out, and they take the offerings, and they make the sacrifices on the altar. And God says, you have profaned my table. You have taken lightly my table. You have believed foolishly that this is okay. And then the rest of the people, or perhaps a lot of the people, instead of loving their first wives, we saw this last week, instead of embracing and pursuing the wives of their youth who are no longer youthful, they are, as the Bible would say, stricken in years. They divorce them. They go after the young gals, the foreign wives that are going to lead them away. And God says, by doing that, you have profaned my sanctuary. Profane my name, profane my table, profane my sanctuary. And all of these things, all these things together were part of this covenant that they had with God. It wasn't like, okay, all these things are disconnected. They were all connected into this one covenant with God. And this covenant was this divine agreement that God made with his people. And it defined what their relationship was going to be like. Including promises of blessings for obedience and promises of cursings for disobedience. All together. And so the people deny that God's promises to bless are true and they cease to love him. And they deny God's promises to curse that they're actually true and they cease to fear him. So you have a people who have both ceased to love God and ceased to fear God. Know that disbelief in God's promises, whether it be promises to bless or promises to curse, disbelief in those promises will always lead to disobedience. And disobedience will always lead to broken relationships. Always. Our obedience never, ever dictates our relationship with God, but it will always reflect it. 
It will always reflect. God does not love you more if you obey Him. We are accepted, therefore we obey. That is true. But whether or not you obey, just as Israel tells us something about whether or not you have a relationship with God. Worship, praise, proclamation, ascribing to God all the things that He is due. Worship is the appropriate response to who God is and what He has done. That's the appropriate response. But the Israelites have stopped worshiping purely. They are doing some form of worship, perverted and as broken as it is. And they have ceased to worship God because primarily this, and maybe this sounds like you, they've determined that they really don't like who God is because they don't like what He's done or not done. Paul says about all the Old Testament lessons and stories in the Bible, including what we hear in Malachi, that they are given to us as Christians today to build our faith, to build our trust in the Lord. And so from the Israelites' example, I want to I want to look at three things. I'll try to be a little more organized for you, because I'm always all over the place. I'm trying. Look, I'm being sanctified in my preaching. Now, three things. One, How can we or could we respond to God when He is silent? When He is silent. Secondly, how must we respond when God is not fair? And thirdly, how we should respond when God is angry. So how are we going to respond when God is silent? Well, just say, how could we respond? God is not like a junior high girl who just got a new iPhone and determines she has unlimited texting. Okay? What I mean by that, he has long silences. He doesn't just talk constantly all the time. Up until Malachi, up until this prophecy that Israel receives here, God had been relatively silent for a hundred years. It wasn't the first time God had been silent. After Malachi, he's silent for about 400 years. So a hundred years of silence. And the last thing that God had said in the previous prophecy of Zechariah was that one day they would experience incredible blessing, incredible prosperity, that God would show up and protect them and 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 heal them and, and proclaim his name through them. Of course, he never said exactly when this would happen. And he never said exactly how this would happen. Now, when the Israelites didn't experience the prosperity that in their own minds, there was a certain time frame, a certain way it would come about. So when they didn't get the prosperity then in the time or the way they anticipated, they began to doubt that it was ever going to happen. I don't know if that was at year 20, 21, 54, 99, whatever. Like, at what point do we go, I'm not sure God's going to show up. He hasn't done much for a while. He didn't do much for my parents and so on and so forth. I don't know. But at some point, they began to doubt. They began to doubt that God really meant what he said. 
that his word was actually trustworthy. They began to doubt that he was actually going to remove wickedness, that he was actually going to restore peace. Why? Because things just seemed to get worse. Sound familiar? If you ever take time to um, look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think you should revisit that weekly. Because it sets the stage for kind of how all things went wrong and why all things went wrong. And if you look back there, you would see, as we saw in our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, what begins with doubt about what God has said always ends with lies about who God is. If you think about the garden experience and recollect, recollect with you a little bit, Satan's first thing he said to Eve was, did God really say? It wasn't an attack directly on God yet. It began with his word. Did God really say this? And what did it end with? Oh, no, no. God knows you're not going to die. God knows actually these awesome things are going to happen to you. Did you know that God actually is a liar? An unloving liar at most. He's holding out and he's this cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you really to experience what really you can experience. He doesn't want you to enjoy life. He's holding out on you. So what begins with doubt about God's word always leads to lies about who God is. So be careful when you begin to doubt what God has said. Because there's a path that's very clearly set before us. See, from Israel's perspective, God has not done what he said. He hasn't held up his part of the agreement or his promise. And so their despair over what they don't have is actually made worse because they actually believe they've held up their end of the bargain. They believe that they have been faithful, that they have earned prosperity by living rightly, unlike the rest of the world who isn't even trying. And so it's made worse. Like, come on, Lord. I mean, I've been, I've, I, we've been doing what you asked. We're making the sacrifices, though they're scabby and lame. I mean, we've been doing things. And as we saw in Malachi 1 and 2, they are flat out delusional to believe that they're worshiping purely. God has directly said, like, no, actually, you are totally wrong. You are profaning my name. You are profaning my altar. You are profaning my sanctuary. Don't think for a second you guys are doing anything right. But they believe that. And I find that whenever, and I I say this like whenever I find somebody, but me too. But whenever someone doesn't experience contentment, I find that it's pretty rare that they will naturally look inward to find the problem. Israel at this point has been told directly, You are not offering acceptable offerings. Priests, you are not defending the truth. You are divorcing your wives, and they are blind to their sin. And what we hear in Malachi chapter 3 is that they're not blind to everyone else's, though. They have become overwhelmed by this absence of blessing, and so much so that they cannot see they have a broken relationship with God And that is actually the core of their problem. They have become what we'll just 
call victims. And by victims, I mean they, like victims, are notorious for hiding and minimizing and ignoring their own sin. Where there should be confessing of sin, which is clearly seen here, all you have is complaining about everyone else's sin. And that's what you have. They don't see anything that they've done that's wrong. And so God confronts them about their complaint. says, you, wipe me out with your constant complaint. And again, if you look back at Genesis chapter 3, when Adam is confronted with his sin and told, you have screwed up, man. We see that when men and women refuse to take blame for their sin, eventually it leads to blaming God. That's what Adam did. Well, the woman that you gave me, God, made me eat. Blaming God for his problems. Blaming God for his sin. Blind to the fact that he maybe did anything wrong at all. So Israel looks out at the evil in the world, and they're prospering. I think we could probably do the same. You look around and you see whoever we determine to be bad people experiencing blessing. And they're confounded because, as I said, in their opinion, the world isn't even trying to do right like they supposedly are. And they begin to complain specifically about the fact that God is doing nothing, that God is silent. That God is even approving of what's going on. God says that he is tired of listening to their words, not because he's an impatient father. He's tired of it because their complaints about what God has not done are actually false accusations about who God is. See, Dad, Dad, God, I guess that's somewhat true. God's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of of questions at all. But he is certainly not pleased with our complaints. And there is a difference. And Israel not only refuses to take responsibility for their sin, they actually begin to blame God for the sin in the world. And they judge God's silence to mean one of two things. And you see this in the first couple verses. They make accusations. First, since God is allowing evil to happen... And even evil to prosper, he must like it. He must delight in evil. He must enjoy it. He must really enjoy adulterers. He must really appreciate liars. He must celebrate with the oppressors and cruel bosses. He must adore the thieves. That is actually what they're proclaiming. The second thing they say is if God is not only prospering, but he's not punishing them. And if he's unwilling to punish what is clearly evil, he must not be a just God. Because if God is a judge, why isn't he executing judgment on the criminals out there? If God is holy and he really hates evil, then why would he just break the silence, stop the oppression, fix all the problems, 
the problems and punish evildoers right now. You ever thought that? Of course, I find that we're always much more demanding for God's immediate judgment on the evil of the world than we are for his judgment on our own. For that, I find that we are the ones who are usually quite silent. So Israel responds to God's silence of not doing anything and letting the world go with accusations because, here's why they're accusing God, the relationship is broken. See, silences in a relationship aren't strange or odd when you have a healthy relationship. I thought of this the other day. I was driving in the car with my bride, whom I love, and I feel like for 99% of the time, we have an awesome relationship. But I found as we got older or get older, when we're in the car, we don't say as much anymore. But I don't feel weird about it. Like when we were first dating, it's like, because why, you know? I wanted her to like, you know, like me. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Now we, we communicate so much in a very beautiful way. We know each other's hearts a lot that getting in the car, it's just like, no kids, let's rest. Right? We're just like driving. <laughs> But it doesn't feel odd. We can sit together and we, we can have a meal together and we don't have to talk and fill the air for 90% of the time. And, and we won't leave there going, wow, something must be wrong. Why? Because we have a healthy relationship. Silences are only bad when the relationship is broken. And when the relationship is broken and someone's silent, you're thinking, you know, I screwed up, so I'm just wondering what they think. Or maybe they screwed up. Why aren't they saying something? You assume the worst. But it's not because of the silence. It's because of the relationship. And so Israel, because their relationship is broken, assumes silences are bad and God must be these bad things. They start to accuse. Just like husbands and wives accuse each other when their relationship is broken and suddenly things are quiet. So how... Could we respond with silences? We could accuse God. And all I'm telling you is the silence isn't the problem. Silence isn't the problem. What about when God is not fair? That seems like a strange thing to say. Well, in his grace, God says, I'm going to confront both of these lies, that I delight in sin and that uh, I'm not just. And in doing so, what he does is he reveals himself, and he reveals himself to be a God who is not fair. Now, that might seem like a very strange thing to say about God, because your kids are probably accusing you one time or another, like, you're not fair. When my kids do that, I say, I never claim to be. I'm just right. That might even seem like a bad thing to say in terms of God not being fair, but it's exactly what we need him to be. You see, Israel uh, is evil. Let's establish this fact. The first two chapters of Malachi reveal very clearly God's opinion of Israel. They are evil. They are broken. They are sinful. They are lots of bad things. They have profaned his name, profaned his table, profaned his sanctuary. So if God directly tells you, look, you have profaned my name, profaned my table, profaned my sexual. I, I think he's 
not really pleased. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 1, God directly says, I have no pleasure in you. I do not like you. I am not pleased with you. So if we're wondering, like, I wonder what God thinks about Israel at this point, it's pretty clear. And if there is any confusion about how God sees his people going through the religious practices, going to church, reading their Bible, praying, all the things that we say, oh, this is what a good Christian does. If there's any confusion, he gives them a very clear picture of what he thinks of them by giving us the most disgusting image of wiping the poop from their offerings on their faces. So if you're curious what God's opinion is of Israel, there you go. And that's not, oh, they fell in poop. That's no. God doing it. That's what I think of your great religious worship, guys. And yet Israel, think about this, wonders aloud. I wonder if God delights in sin. Because I'm not really sure if this bothers him or not. Really? You're really not sure if God delights in sin or not. He seems to have been very clear. See, false worship that declares your own sin to be no big deal bothers God incredibly. And to prove, though, that he does not delight in evil, he tells Israel this, I'm coming. I'm going to come. You want me to punish sin? Okay, I agree. And I'm going to start with yours. I'm going to start with yours. Now, God is not fair. Meaning, his judgment, as we see in this passage, has a different purpose for and effect on his people than it does the world that is in rebellion against him. The judgment of God results in condemnation on the world, but the judgment of God results in redemption for his people. God says that he's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. God had sent many messengers. Malachi is a messenger. There were many prophets before him that were also messengers. But this is the last one he's going to send. And the messenger is not coming to declare a new message or the same message, but to give a warning to clear the path for the king. What the Bible says, the messenger of the covenant. There's two messengers in there. The king who is coming. He says the Lord himself is going to show up. The Lord is coming. He says the first thing that he's going to do is to remove the impurities finest people. He is coming to cleanse his people of sin. He is coming to purify his people and make them, right? Make them into righteous worshipers. He's not coming to teach them how to be worshipers. He's not coming to give them good advice of what they should do. He is coming to transform them into worshipers. He's not coming to tell them what to do. He is actually coming to do it for them. And before the judge rightly destroys all the evil in the world, he is going to destroy the evil in the hearts of his people. 
That's where he always starts. He asks rhetorically, and this is why we've named the series Rhetorical God, because these questions come up where the answers are obvious. He says, who can stand? Who can stand the wrath of the king when he comes? Who can endure the wrath of the king? And it's not like they're going, well, maybe Jethro can. He seems like a good guy. Maybe Ebenezer. I mean, he seemed to memorize a lot of the Old Testament. No. The rhetorical answer or the implied answer is no one. No one can stand before the righteous, wrathful king. There are none who are good. There are none who are pure. All fall short of God's standard. All are guilty. All deserve to die. The only ones that will ever stand or endure the wrath of God are those who receive the grace of God. God and His vows to His children were based on His own faithfulness, not ours. That's worthy of an amen. When you are getting married, and I say this often, when you're taking vows, I often say to husbands or to wives, say, you realize the vows you're taking are not dependent upon what the other person does. We realize God took a vow, and that vow was based on His faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to Him. Praise God for that. The only reason... God's people are not destroyed because God is not fair, meaning he doesn't give his people what they deserve. That would be fair. Being fair would be killing. Being fair would give them exactly what they had earned, which was a fast pass to hell. The only right response to God's unfairness Gratitude. Gratitude. See, making his people clean, as he says he does, is a gloriously painful process that began with the death of Jesus Christ. Removing our sin, removing your sin is painful, but not before it was painful to him. John the Baptist was the messenger that prepared the way, and we'll see this very clearly in Matthew, and Jesus Christ was the King. The Lord Himself who came, who died. And through believing that Jesus died in my place, He does more than just cleanse me from my sin. He actually makes it possible for me to make sacrifices to the King that are fully acceptable. Quote in Acts 29, brother of mine, got an awesome beard. Joe Thorne said this, my justification is not only my hope of standing before God, but it is also the hope of my works standing before God. He not only accepts me, but he accepts my works and delights in them, however deformed they are, for Christ perfects It's not just that I am standing, it's that after I am standing, anything I do is received by God in all purity, even if it falls short. Through faith we died with Christ, and when we die with Christ, we are made, okay, we are made positionally 
pure in the Lord before the judge of eternity. We, we are made positionally pure. But we also find that the painful refinement process on earth takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. See, the cross does change how we look because it changes what we look at. And what I mean is this. It's not enough. It's not enough to see our sin cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus. We must also see our sin as the reason He's on the cross in the first place. You can't tell Jesus, my Savior, forgave me. But yeah, you realize, but you put Him there. You put Him there. And as the gospel goes deeper and deeper into our hearts, that truth goes deeper, we become, as we, as we look at the glory of Jesus Christ, we become, in a very mysterious way, as clean on the outside as we already are on the inside. We become, over a slow, painful process, in practice what we already are in position. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord. As we behold that, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, from this, for this, sorry, comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being changed. We are pure before God inside, but we all know on the outside, not so much. And so God's judgment comes in Christ and that judgment refines us painfully so. Painfully so. But in the most glorious of ways. So how to respond to God's unfairness with gratitude. Even gratitude for some of the pain. Which we'll hit in just a second. As we look at this last point, how we should respond when God is angry. Because we see at the end of the passage here, He is angry. If the cross is a declaration of innocence for those who fear God enough to believe, it is a declaration of guilt for those who do not fear and do not believe. God has a long wick, and it will burn a long time. But because he is just, he will get angry. God doesn't describe himself very often in the Bible, but in one passage in Exodus chapter 3, he declares his name before Moses. And in declaring his name, he's not just going, by the way, my name is God. Can I introduce you to myself? In declaring his name, he proclaims a description of his character and his essence. Exodus 3 says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen. That's the first part of what I just preached. Here's the second part. But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the 
third and fourth day. See, the then of verse 5, which says, Then I will draw near to you, has not come yet. The day of judgment is what it is called. And it will come when Jesus returns. And for his people, Jesus is going to be a witness for their defense. And for those who are not his people, Jesus is going to be a witness for prosecution. And by the time Jesus arrives, which I pray is right now, it be awesome. By the time he arrives, guess what? The trial is over. And the judgment is swift. And this can easily, I think, lead those who are in Christ, those who claim to love Jesus, know Jesus, are Jesus' kids, to stand afar from the world that's going to be judged with pride instead of dwelling in it with love. We'll be tempted to sit on the bench and act like a judge. And I warn you, just as Israel should be warned, that position is already taken. There is a judge, and you and I are not him. Or not him, I should say. See, I don't think that we should just ignore God's anger. I think we should press into God's anger and respond to God's anger in a very specific way. The reality of God's anger with the world, the world being that which is in rebellion against him, not just culture. But the reality of his anger with the world should not lead us to pride but humility because in the judgment of the world, guess what? We see the judgment that we deserve. Never forget that. And so knowing that God is angry, three things. Knowing that God is angry and that there is a coming judgment of the world helps me to know this, that God's silences does not mean he's indifference, indifferent. And that should lead me to faith. That should lead me to trust. Because I've seen the cross. I've seen how angry God gets. I've seen and know that there is a judgment coming. And it should lead me to faith. That he is in control, even when he is not speaking like a little junior high girl texting me all the time, telling me every detail that's going on. How is this going to work out, God? You're not saying anything. Knowing there is a judgment, knowing I've seen a judgment, leads me to trust he's in control. He's not blind to what is happening. But secondly, knowing that God is angry and there's a coming judgment of the world, but not a coming judgment for me coming judgment of the world, but not a judgment for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. So knowing that helps me to know that what feels like judgment, like, God, why do you hate me, is refinement. It can't be judgment. I don't view it as judgment. There is a judgment coming, and that ain't coming for me, for those who are in Christ. And so it leads me to actually grow. It leads me to actually worship even in the pain and through the pain. And you see that the trials that James talks about and having joy in them is because he knows it's refining him into something more glorious and more beautiful and more Christ-like. 
look at, quote, judgment differently. And when I think and begin to accuse God for being mean, I think that's not the case. He's going to be mean one day. But it's not to me. And so the pain I feel right now actually has to be the loving refinement of God. And lastly, knowing that God is angry and that there is a coming judgment of the world helps me to restrain my own judgment and indifference of the world. It should actually lead me to mission. It should actually lead me to be compassionate. It should actually lead me to love people enough to warn them and to compel them towards the cross. That's what the judgment of God should be. And so God closing answers Israel's accusations by telling them that he is coming and he is coming to prove that they are wrong in person. And he did come. God broke the silence after 400 years with one name and that name was Jesus. And he is the last word that he has spoken but it is not the last word that God is going to speak. Jesus is going to come again. Jesus Christ my Lord and my Savior, who walked on this earth for 33 years and we've been waiting for 2,000 plus years, is going to return again. And his crucifixion proves that the evil of this world disgusts him. That he is willing to give and pay the ultimate price. He can give no greater price to agree with us to say, that is messed up. He says, yeah, it is. And I'm going to give the greatest price I can to make it right. So don't for a second think that God is pleased with evil or that he's just watching it indifferently. He has proven that he is not indifferent. He has proven how much he cares. He could give nothing more to demonstrate that. So don't mistake his silence for approval or his slowness for indifference. He sees everything. He knows everything. He cares for everything. And for the Christian, know that one day he will make all things right. Let him have his vengeance. Don't take it. Trust in his judgment. Trust in his refinement. He will one day heal it all. And for those who do not believe who are, who are with us, know that that day is going to come suddenly. It could come at any moment. And today is your day to turn from your sin and turn towards Christ. Believe and experience God as the loving Father that He is. Because if you don't, you will experience Him as the wrathful judge that He is. And He will witness for His children. And He will witness against His own. And I want God specifically my Lord Jesus Christ to be a witness at my defense. And I do not want him to be a witness at my condemnation. What are you going to say? He says, I nailed my son on the cross for you. And you did not believe. That's the only hope I have. That's the only hope any of us have. I will stand before the judge and I will say, I am guilty. But there's my payment. There's the one who's not guilty who died for me. The cross shows you that 
your sin. Our sin is so evil that its eradication required the death of God's Son. But the cross also shows us that God's love, He loves us so much that He willingly sacrifices His Son. So God has spoken. And what He has said through His, his Son should silence all of us. Because until you see that someone innocent, and I mean purely sinless, gloriously so, took your guilt, became a victim for you, you will continue to accuse God and play the victim. You will always have something to complain about. But once you see the cross as the place where the judge, after justly declaring you guilty, took off his robe, stepped down from the bench, and took your place as the accused and was executed in your place, you will realize you have absolutely nothing to complain about and everything to worship him about. I will close with a passage out of Peter who probably was speaking to people who felt similar to how Malachi's people feel, watching the world fall apart around them and wondering, where is Jesus? When's this all going to end? And he says this in 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, for the, with the Lord one day as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We take communion every Sunday because we believe it's the third way to preach the gospel. We preach it as we sing preach it from God's word, and then we lift up the gospel in the most clearest way as we lift up the cup and the bread. And be reminded of what Jesus said when he took the first communion with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, arrested, and eventually would be killed. He said, do this in remembrance of me and always do it until the day I come. And as we do this, we are remembering that Jesus is coming back. And until that time, we hold this up as our only hope, our only joy, our only purpose and mission for this life, to proclaim and to deeply believe that people might receive more and more grace and God more and more gratitude for all that he has done. And when he returns, it will all make sense and all be good and all be glorious. And so we look forward and pray for that.